Life Jitsu Art of Life. Frank Forza here with Eric Nixick. Eric is one of the leaders here at Extreme Couture. If you're not a fight fan, no problem. Uh, Extreme Couture is highly regarded, a world-renowned gym for cage fighters and others. Uh, it's what, 12,000 square feet? 24,000. 24,000. So yeah. East, very East building is 12,000. Very big property. So today we are going to talk with Eric about leadership. Eric's a bartender and he's also a father, father of three. And he is also a, an MMA trainer as well. He's cornered some very big fights, UFC fights, Bellator fights, etc. So a lot to be learned there. Entrepreneurship. This, this gym, as much as Randy Couture has a great name, he's a great guy. There was a time where it wasn't doing as well. It was underperforming. You guys have turned it around. We're going to talk about some of the, the tricks of the trade of how they turned a gym that, that was underperforming and how you beefed it up and now you have a thriving clientele and everything. So without further ado, life through the eyes of Eric Nixick, a, a father, an entrepreneur, a bartender, <laughs> who also does a pretty good job reading the minds and thoughts and adapting to, 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 to fighters who are in some of the most high-pressure situations you can imagine. So Eric, thank you so much. Let's let's dive in. First of all, you told me as a bartender, you you, you told me a story about your father mm. when you were quarterback in um, in was it high school? Yeah, it was high school. Yeah. And your father said some things that have impacted your leadership skills and how you read people. Tell right. us the story of what your dad downloaded into you. Well, it, it, it's a scenario when, as a quarterback, there's ten other guys on the field with you, and I remember coming off the field one time upset at a certain player because he didn't do his job. And my way of reacting to him was yelling at him. Mm-hmm. But what we noticed right away was this kid was now challenged in a way that he didn't like. He mm-hmm. didn't he didn't relate to. He didn't respond to he it. He didn't well. respond to it well. And one of the, the quickest and easiest learning moments that I had was my dad just said to me, he said, Listen, son, if you're gonna play this position you, you're going to have to understand what makes people tick and what you need to do to help motivate them. He goes, you can't motivate and yell at people all the same way because you might not get the response that you want. So get to know your teammates and understand what makes them go, what they need to hear. Some you can yell at, some you need to coddle, some you need to pat on the back. So for me, I always resonated uh, not only on the football field but in life. Mm-hmm. You know, if I want to get the best out of somebody... I, I try to get to know them before I just think I can yell at them or before I need to say something to, to them and what makes them tick. So that helped me out a lot. So as a bartender, I mean, I tend to think of bartending kind of like a, your hairstylist, right? People sit in a chair, they get their hair cut, and they sort of go into this zen zone. They go on autopilot subconscious, mm-hmm. and they tell their hairstylist every deep, dark secret, and they treat them like a psychologist. Bartending can have that effect, too, where people come in, that you know, you you come to know them over the course of years. They trust you and they confide in you a mm-hmm. lot. So it gives you a really good read, I guess, on people and, and people management. Absolutely, and I, I think I've, you know, I've been bartending since I was 21 years old, so 17 years in the bar industry, and I've met some some lifelong friends through the bar industry. But moreover, it just helps you understand customer service, mm-hmm. and which has translated for me over over into the facility that I'm now that. You know, if you if you give a little bit of yourself, sometimes that's going to benefit tenfold into, into the customer service industry. Mm-hmm. You know, so understanding people again, talking, um, 
you know, in a, in a, in a bar industry, you're talking about depressants, you're mm-hmm. giving them alcohol. You know, they might be gambling. They might have marital problems. There's things that's going on. So lending an ear and, and listening and those things have, have definitely helped me in this in this line of work. Yeah, what was interesting and part of the reason, I mean, I've known Eric for a couple of years now. I've known Randy Couture for probably 16 or so years. I've written a lot of stories with Randy. I've interviewed Randy. Randy, one of my big thing, things is age defiance and aging well and performing well into your late 30s, 40s. You know, we're seeing Tom Brady do that. We're seeing a lot of athletes do that. Randy Couture was one of the athletes who really, him, Bernard Hopkins, they were uh, George Foreman even, you know, who aged very well and were performing very well at a late, late in their career. Nolan Ryan was another one. Mm-hmm. So Randy Couture really was a pioneer of that in the fight sports, really aging really well. And so it's long overdue to interview someone like Eric. And one of the things that fascinated most, I'm thinking, he, when you look at somebody who had, you know, the, the way that you sort of read people in bartending, mm-hmm little bit different you're managing a different kind of personality two extremes people you're encountering bartending a lot of times you know people that that may be um very friendly very kind a lot of times very Mm -hmm. generous some of the best tippers right or drinkers and smokers but on the other hand they may be not the most clean living people a lot of but then you're dealing with fighters and you have a lot of clean livers Mm -hmm. you know people who living living clean again think of the pun there clean Mm -hmm. livers Mm -hmm. clean clean livers a clean liver uh and then the unclean livers uh, but but you're juxtaposing a very it's a diametrically opposite demographic. You're right. dealing with people in those bars and people who drink a lot and your regular customer, and then on the other hand, the fighters that are Spartan lifestyle, deprivation, clean living. Talk about that juxtaposition of life. You have one foot in one life and another foot in a whole nother life. Yeah, it, it's hard not to get a little. What would the word be? You, you get you get disgruntled at times when you see people that are living a certain way, mm-hmm. um, and you and you and you can't help everybody. You want them to understand what they're doing to their bodies, and but those are situations that we just you just can't help sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what I what I do is I I over appreciate the, the the people that we have here who understand what they're doing to their bodies and taking care of themselves. So I always think to myself that. If I want to live up to a high standard and I want to surround myself with people that either meet my standard or raise that standard. So the bar to me, in a sense, is um, I want to say I, I kind of shut it off, but I just understand the animal that goes on in there. And mm-hmm. then when I leave, it's back to where I need to be. I don't drink on the bar. I don't ever smoke a cigarette in my life. It's just not my it's just not my thing. But it doesn't mean it can't be somebody else's. So right. I take so that you, you try to you try to reserve judgment, even though you may live a, by a certain code and you 100%. may appreciate clean living. Right. You you've you've learned to suspend judgment. And right. At one hundred percent. And and the, the, I think the hard thing is is when people see me or they know what I do for a living, they always want to talk and associate. Like, well, how do you do this? And and how do I get better at this? And you want to spend time with them and talk to them in the bar setting, but they, at the end of the day, 99% of the time, you're, you're usually just wasting your time and trying to explain to them, hey, well, you can't eat a Cobb salad if you're trying to lose 20 pounds, right. you know, things of that sort. So, um, But, yeah, I, I don't try to judge. I just try to do my, my shift and give them the best that I can for that time that I'm there and then at home. You know, that that is very interesting what he just said about part of reading people is to read when you give someone advice, if someone asks for advice – reading whether or not this person is actually even going to probably implement it, right? right? Because if you, I mean, I've had times in my life where someone would ask something, and I've spent one hour, two hours, three hours, sometimes more, and you give them advice, and then they just totally discard, and you just feel like, man, I just wasted five hours of my life this person's not ready for, right? Because yeah. there's an old saying, one of my favorite sayings is, 
when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And sometimes we give people more advice or more whatever, even though they ask. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. you're giving them more than they're ready for. It's like, wait, you just wasted that. There's levels and people are not ready, including me at different right. points in my life. We're just not ready for certain things. And so you're wasting your time giving them that information. Maybe you could lead them and say, look, here's a card or somebody can call right. where they where they can take the next step. Correct. You can test them, right? Almost, you know, you give them a little, give them a five minute thing and see if they would take that next step rather than someone like me who just goes on autopilot, gives them 90 minutes and they're listening and they're so engaged. And then you find, oh, they didn't do any of it. We call those people ask holes. <laughs> ask holes. That's a pretty good one. So, um, you know, let's talk about the the fighters and, and real time because mm-hmm. one of the things that's that's so fascinating for me, and, and this should resonate, if you're not a fight fan, that's fine. I mean, the kind of things that we talk about, life jitsu, art of life, these are universal themes. These are things that, um, you know, we're just looking through someone's eyes. Eric is, is very much like any other entrepreneur or any other father out there, father of three, happily married, guy staying in shape who loves what he does, great time manager, by the way, but... But when you when you're there, let's say you're cornering a fighter, UFC, right, Ultimate Fighting Championship. I always love the in between rounds when the fight is close, mm-hmm. and that and and the fighters go back to their corner. Maybe it's round five, and it's an up for grabs fight. Mm. What is that coach saying to the athlete, or what energy? It's not always what's said; it's what's not said. What's the energy? What's the poise? That's one of my favorite. Um, subplots of the fight game, right? And so, tell us a little bit about those, those moments where maybe, maybe what you think, hey, some of the best work I've ever done, Frank, is when fighter, you know, this fighter came back for the corner, mm-hmm. and I could see they were tired or whatever, some kind mm-hmm. of scenarios like that. Well, again, I think it goes back to to knowing your fighter, knowing what they need to hear, knowing that. There's, there's, everything is in unison between corner and fighter. I mm. understand that they're the ones that, that are in there executing, but probably one of the, the best compliments that I've ever had in my in my coaching career was um, one of Gray Maynard's fights, mm-hmm. and he got on the stool going into the third round, and, and you can tell he was pretty tired, you know, but I looked him in the eyes, and we spoke about the, the things that we needed to execute, but at the end, I just said, listen, man, I believe in you. Mm-hmm. I know I know what we need to do. I know how you're gonna go out there and you're gonna execute. And and there's some some things that we, we said in, in the corner, but when when it was all said and done, the fight was over, literally in the cage, Greg gives me the big old hug and he says, Listen, man, he goes, I've never felt more confident going in by looking in your eyes knowing that you believed in me. He goes, mm-hmm. I've never had that before. And this is a guy who's fought for titles, you know, so that to me with in, in my career has been one of the one of the best compliments that I can have that a fighter can look at me and know that we're going we're gonna to do this together. You know? So there's a sense of unity there for me. Yeah, what's interesting is we have, you have two things in life. You have art and you have science. And some people are so science-minded, they only want to hear things like, hey, the scientist said, the psychologist said, the right. registered nutritionist said. And then you have other people that are the art side who just sort of improvise and figure it out. They're very intuitive. Mm-hmm. They're very experiential. They're trial and error people. They figure it out, but they don't have the science. They didn't do a 20-year study on 20,000 people, right? And so what you do, a lot of times, the, 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 it's the balance between art and science. Correct. And when you, there is no, um, you know, when it comes to cornering a fighter, a lot of that is art mm-hmm. because there's an improvisation. You don't know, before the fight, you don't know exactly how it's going to play You're out. You're not given a script. When you look up and it's round five and your fighter is exhausted, they come back to the corner, mm-hmm. and now it's like, well, which button, as you were talking about the Gray Maynard story, mm-hmm. which button 
am I going to to push? So even though, you know, neither of us is a registered psychologist, neither of us has a PhD, mm-hmm. but when you live in the trenches in the in the fight sports, for instance, it's like it's it's a great, it's a fascinating place to study human nature because you can't hide there, mm-hmm. right? Your heart rate's up. Mm-hmm. Everything you are is going to, it's a crystal ball, right? Everything you are is going to come to the surface. And so you do learn, the, the, the same thing with bartending, you learn a lot of psychology 100%. to do what you do really well. Because you got to read that fighter. And, yep. and, and the human mind is a strange thing. People, you can have mentally tough people. And for some reason, I mean, we just saw it this past weekend, Rose Namajunas fought Joanna Jay. And Rose Namajunas won the fight. I thought she would win the rematch. But she took like she took round three off. Mm-hmm. Low volume, wasn't aggressive. I mean, I thought she was winning the fight. Inexplicably, fighter psychology is a weird thing. It's just weird. Like, did I'm thinking, did she hurt her hand? You know. So right. again, this is the kind of these are the kind of things that an Eric, when you're a trainer and you're sitting there looking and knowing your fighter and knowing their head and knowing why they might be reticent. Why are they not following the game plan? You know, where are we fatigue? Mm-hmm. Are we doubting ourselves? Right. So these are all the things that you're that you're reading 100%. real in real time. Um, so, by the way, everybody, uh, Eric has a great story. I, I want to make sure we tell this story. This is a Rubik's Cube. Anybody from our generation? I don't know if the millennials know what this is, but I know my generation, Eric's generation, we know what this is. This was on Eric's desk, and it's been solved. Someone solved it. And so, naturally, I said, Eric, are you a Rubik's Cuber, right? Is he a problem solver? Is he doing that? And, Eric, uh, tell us about the Rubik's Cube. Are you a Rubik's Cuber? No, I'm not. And, and it's actually kind of a funny story. We had a, we had a young gentleman that was training in the gym for a little while. Um, he had some special needs. Uh, it, it almost just equated to where the mom felt it was easier for her to bring him here. And uh, he's a 19, 20-year-old kid. And he hung out all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we noticed in, that, in the time that he was here, he, he, only, he very rarely wore a shirt. Um, he had a pair of uh, Muay Thai shorts. And he was walking a lot to get home and get where he needed to be. Um, so anyways, I had, a, I had a nice conversation with him. We talked about some of the things in life, some of his goals, what he was trying to do. Uh, I gave him a pair of shoes because I had, a, I had an extra pair of Reebok shoes in my car. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so he, I gave him the pair of shoes because he was walking home. And he asked, and, and this, was, this was not solved. This was all jumbled up. And he says, I don't have anything to give to you. I said, it's okay. Remember, like, me giving something to you is, is, is giving back to me. You know, so he said, well, I don't have anything. Can I give you this? And I said, no, I want you to have it. You, you keep it. And um, so it was it was not solved. And then the next morning I came in my office and it was solved. And it was sitting on my desk and it said, thanks, coach, on there. So uh, it was kind of an interesting story. But the kid actually moved back to Detroit the next day. So it was kind of a, his farewell present for me. And, and you know, hopefully... Um, some of the, the interactions that him and I had, had, whether it be short or long, that there's something that I'm always going to remember, and I hope, I hope the same thing goes for him on his end. So, it's, it's a great story, by the way. See, you just you walk around. I always love to interview people in their element, whether it be their house, whether it be the house they grew up in, their office, because there's always some little clue. Normally, most people have something there that there's some clue, and you just innocuous. You just ask about a Rubik's Cube, and then you get you know a great story. So... Um, you're a native of where? Born and raised in Vegas. Born and raised in Vegas. So that's, there's what, 2.2, 2.3 million people now. By the way, everybody, just an aside, I've been in Vegas for 16 years now. I never thought I would stay. Nobody who comes and moves to Vegas ever thinks they're going to stay, right? It's a big accident. Everybody just thinks they're passing through and, and they're going to come and go. And, um, and 
you know, two or three years turned into 16 in my case. And I've just seen the city grow up. I had a love-hate relationship with Vegas. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't wait to get out. And uh, it, it is interesting now. I, you know, I have warmed up to Las Vegas, and it's interesting to see the city grow up and mature. And I think one of the best things that happened in this city, actually, it's, it's again, it's the case where a blessing in disguise, this city was centered around the casino strip and gaming and mm-hmm. gambling. And that used to be the lifeblood of this city. Mm-hmm. And now, according to the latest stats I saw, it was like 30% or so of all the revenue on the strip is, is gaming revenue. Oh, it's down to 30% because of gaming in other places and mm-hmm. online gaming, et cetera, legalized gaming in other states. So now Vegas, I mean, it's our percentage of gaming revenue is going down and you're seeing more of the nightlife stuff, more of the shows and other forms of entertainment. Now you're seeing can the mass exodus with California where a lot of people are leaving California because of the, you know, the taxation, the regulation, whatever. Um, a lot of those people are moving here. I never thought real estate would rebound after 2007, 2008 right. crash. It is rebounding. It is it's like Vegas getting, you know, Raiders here, WNBA, soccer teams, NHL, Golden Knights. Like nice. the city is on fire now. And it and it's almost like no stopping the train. It's a crazy it's a crazy thing. And the city's growing up. You're seeing more more tech talent, you know, uh, moving here. And and so, it's it's interesting as it moves away from gaming. I know that was what put the city on the map. It was genius at the time to take a city that was nothing, that was desert, and 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 the the, the visionaries to build what they did was incredible. But now Vegas, you know, you've seen it just have to grow up. Yeah, and it, I love this city more than anything in the world. I love what this city represents, but moreover, I love what this city pulls out of people. And what I mean by that is this is a culture, and especially in my gym, this is a culture to where we weed out the weak people. The city weeds out the weak. I'm going to give you an example. Kevin Lee, young kid, out of Detroit, moves to Vegas, 20, 21 years old, mm-hmm. could very easily fall in the, in the pitfalls of what Las Vegas has. Right, but when you get a kid who that has no bearing on on him, he he he's he's centerlined and focused on what his his goal and what he mission he wants to accomplish, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a guy that comes out here and works hard, trains. There's no pitfalls for him. Mm-hmm. So this this big animal that sits on the nightlife of the strip is yep. is waiting for you, right? And then you get the people that I want to do this, I want to do that, and they come out and then the city just tears them down. They can't handle it. It exposes. You. It exposes yeah. you. You know, so for me, I love this city in the way to where yeah. it weeds out the weak. That's a great explanation. And that's an interesting thing is that there's that there's that juxtaposition where Vegas is the fight capital of the world. I mean, you have, uh, you know, California has some, some you know, produces a lot of great martial artists, jiu-jitsu arrows, and Brazil, of course, Russia. You talk If you're talking about top three fight producers as by nations, I'm going to say United States, Brazil, Russia. Russians, sure. Russians are coming on quick. But Vegas really is, I mean, because of the, the, the shows too, and we have so many good, whether it's jiu-jitsu, uh, MMA, we have so, so much talent here. Mm-hmm. It's the fight capital of the world. So you have all these fighters that have to live a Spartan existence, a clean living existence, and yet, right, five, seven miles right down the road is all the trouble you can get into in the world at any hour of the day. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's a great, it's, a, it's an interesting juxtaposition 
um, because it's not always the easiest. City. Like, I'll give you an example. When I was a Miami Dolphins fan forever, and the Dolphins, of course, would always break my heart, and they would never win, and I was a big Dan Marino <laughs> fan, and they would never win. And one of my theories was, man, there's just too much to do in Miami. There's right. too much trouble to get into. There's right. too much partying, too many whatever, and that's why the Dolphins can't. So to, to your point, though, um, I guess tell us how many of those stories have you had, though, where you had a fighter who had the talent, but maybe they got caught up and they got distracted. All the time. Happens all the time. And and for me, and I know I know Randy kind of lived by these standards too, is, you know, don't tell me, show me. You get you get the guys that come in, they walk through the door, and their first thing is, I'm going to be the next, or I can beat this person. Don't tell me, show me, right? I'm on the mats with you every day. I'm going to see it. I'm going to see it in your hard work, and I'm going to see it in your actions. If you do not have a championship mindset, come here humble and understand, have a, say it with a little sense of humility. If you don't really believe in what you're going to do, it's going to show right away. And we know that. And we know that. And that's the big thing, too, with this city is people think that I'm going to come out here, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And right away, the first thing you see, they're at the club, they're out late, they're doing things they shouldn't be doing, they're missing morning trainings and all those sessions. I know right away you don't have a championship mentality. You know, I'm here. I'm the one. I'm, I'm doing it with you. So I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me. Show me. What are the common threats? Fighters are unique athletes. I mean, again, there's no other sport in the world. I think some gymnasts maybe. Mm-hmm. There's no other sport in the world where you got to lose weight, cut weight, and then fight. So you got the fight before the fight, right. which is that battle versus the scale and hydration, the essence of human life, which is water and hydration. And you have, uh, you know, so you have that, these athletes, I mean, LeBron, if he plays in the NBA Finals, doesn't have to worry about, you know, Making uh, how much hydration, how, how's my energy level is going to be, am, you know, am I exhausted from the weight cut, whatever, whatever. So it's a fascinating animal, psychologically plays tricks. I even tell people the story where, you know, because I was, I, was I was watching UFC 223 this past weekend, and I was there with a guy, and the guy was, you know, uh, one of those, uh, nice guy, but he was basically like, oh, there's regular, a lot of regular people that can beat these guys, and, and sort of that sort of mindset, right? And so I thought, well... Even if you know the tough guy in your neighborhood, and there are some really, I'm sure we all growing up, I, I saw some t- I saw some crazy things, and I saw some tough dudes, right? Some hard nosed that no nonsense, kick a lot of butt dudes. I saw a lot of them, but I would say that what makes sport fighting so much more interesting, in addition to the weight cuts, is this: you could be a tough person, but let's say in the street somebody gets mad, right? They go from zero to hundred, they get mad, and they go into Hulk mode, and they don't even think about it. But in the fight game. You have eight weeks, 12 mm-hmm. weeks mm-hmm. to think about it. You have fight week in the lead up. You have weight cuts. The mind plays tricks when you know mm-hmm. that you have a fight coming up. It's different than a guy just, hey, don't grab my wife, don't touch my right. wife. There's no psychological. You're on instinct there. Right. There's no psychological. Build up. Yeah. But in this game, you know, you see that's one of my favorite parts of the fight game is the, the psychological, the Leading fight up. week, and to see how everybody... And again, that's tricky because I've seen people that don't handle fight week well. They're a psychological wreck, but then they're able to dial in. They're able to, you know... Yeah, lights and, come on, they yeah, go. Yeah, and I've, and I've seen people like Uriah Faber very loose all the way up to, you know, you would never know that he has a fight if you saw him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, GSP was notoriously kind of a wreck. And, and then, uh, I mean, what's Randy like fight, fight week? He's, he's one of the mentally toughest out there. Yeah. And, and, and I think he's watching too. Hi, Randy, Mr... Back from Romania, Mr. <laughs> movie star actor now. Yeah, you know, I've never been in the corner with Randy, with the, but I've, I was in some of the training camps with him. 
Um, and from my understanding, Granny's just as cool as the other side of the pillow. He understands uh, what he needs to do. We always look at him and, uh, you know, the late, great Robert Fallis always talked to me about understanding your fighter, for one, and knowing what type of fighter that you have, meaning there's, there's levels to it, meaning there's the fighter, there's the competitor, and there's the athlete. Mm-hmm. And we all have those attributes, some maybe more than others. And understanding what you need to tap into and Randy from Fallis's side has said Randy's the ultimate competitor. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't necessarily want to hurt people. He's not have that fighter. I want to break this guy's neck. But you 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 tell him that there's a challenge. There's a there's a competitive challenge out there for him. That he's a twelve. That he wants to go out and he wants to beat you at whatever craft that you think you're better than him at. Mm-hmm. And how to tap into those things. You know. So usually in the back of the house and, and getting ready, mm-hmm. it might be the fighter guy that you have to rev up. You have to smack around the Chris Liebens of the world, mm-hmm. right? Maybe he doesn't have the athletic prowess or the competitor, but this dude's a fighter. You know what I mean? So that's kind of the thing in the back of the house, and, and how do you mm-hmm. get those points across and get your guy going and rev him up and send him out there to, to compete. So Life Jitsu, Art of Life, Life Through the Eyes of Eric Nixick, who is uh, a you know the coach here at Extreme Couture, one of the coaches. They have a great coaching staff. And uh, we're talking a lot. I mean, there's a lot of psychology, the human nature. You know, get a great place to study human nature is the fight game. Can't hide, get fully exposed. And like Eric said, here in Las Vegas, you will get exposed as well. Not just the cage. Vegas will expose who you are. And Vegas runs a lot of people uh, out of town. Um, as a people manager, because you, you are a good people manager, you have a good way with people, um, and by the way, Robert Falls was a real, he, that, he had sort of that philosopher, mm-hmm. psychological, uh, you know, psychology thing. That was one of his, his many talents. But as far as people management, because there's a lot of people out there, they're working in a company, they're a coach, and it's not easy, right? It's right. not the hardest thing to do for a lot of people. A lot of people can do their job, and they do their job well. But when it comes to managing people, diverse people, we're a, we're a nation of 320, 330 million people from everywhere, all different kinds of religions, races, you know, genders. And so you have, you know, again, I don't like one size fits all. Mm. So I like that you and I think very similarly. There are a lot of people out there, they're one size fits all leadership. And, uh, and they just don't adapt. I've always thought if you want to be a Jedi, you have to adapt, you have to read people. I don't believe it sounds great to say, treat everybody the same. That sounds great. And it's, it's a paradox, because it's Mm -hmm. true. And it's not treat everybody the same means, yeah, I mean, Give every try to give everybody respect. Try not to judge too much, unless you know, you know, unless you really know that enough about the person. But, um, y- you know, the so there is a paradox there. Um, but for people management, which is easy to mess up, you're you're very good at that. If you had to impart three things to people on people management, what are the sort of the three or or four things that are a staple of you managing people? I'm a big gather the facts guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to take in consideration and listen. Um, I like to try to act on on information rather than instinct and emotion. So if things are presented to me or something comes up where I need to make a decision on, I almost try to put myself in their, their shoes as, at times too. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to really listen. And, and think, okay, what, what situation do we have here? And I'm, I'm just a big gather the facts guy. Um, I like to think, too, the team mentality 
is, you know, sometimes it's not about you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not about me. Sometimes it's about the better all over overall instinct of the team mm-hmm. and, and where can this head. So um, I think just, just some empathy uh, and understanding where people are coming from really helps me a lot. Mm-hmm. Really helps me a lot, and 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 giving that energy to that person, and making mm-hmm. making them feel as if whatever problem, whatever situation they have, is my focus right now. Mm-hmm. Giving the hundred hundred percent to them at that moment. So um, I think a lot of that ties into to to kind of understanding the dynamic of what we have here at Shimbatora. We have over five hundred and fifty members here. You know, the egos of all the fighters that we have, the managing that, the, you know, the management, the, the top management, just dealing with people on a day-to-day basis is just try to give them as much energy as you can and make them feel like they're number one whenever they're in your office or wherever you speak to them, make eye contact, make them feel like it's there. It's that, that five minutes, whatever it may be, is, is, yeah. is the best time that they, that they have with you. We talk a lot about the why, you know, you, you see that now business people are talking about it thought leaders and influencers are talking about it. Everybody's talking about your what's your why. Mm-hmm. Um, my take on the why, as I've said, it's not fine what you love. It's not fine what you're excited about. I've seen some other smart people say that. In my opinion, um, your why is what will you suffer for? What will you crawl for? What will you bleed for? What will you drown for? And there's a certain industry that that, that I think that that really applies to, for correct. namely the, the fight industry and the combat sports. That's the test to me, not what are you good at, what do you love. There's all kinds of things we all love. There's a lot of things I love doing. There's, uh, you know, but, but there's not everything that I would suffer for and bleed mm-hmm. for or go through those weight cuts for and mm-hmm. things like that. So that's, that's how I see the why. But you're here. You've got a lot. You've worked with a lot of fighters. You've cornered some big fights. You've got a front row seat to some great psychology. You're always looking to see what button do I need to push. Mm-hmm. What are some of the whys that you come across a lot? What's what's motivating a lot of these different fighters? Like what's the, what's what are some of the whys you've seen with with some of your your fighters you know, it, that stand it, out? It, it can go from them wanting to be the best at their trade and their craft, and they want to they want to put that title around their waist. It could be uh, something with their family. You know, and I, I think the great thing about this sport is it is a constant evolution of whys. Sometimes you get in and you have a reason why you started something yes, yes. and then you find something that yes. continues to push you. Yes. And that's what's great about us, I think, as a as as a human race, is there's no goal that you should hit and then not find something else right. to keep pushing you on right. on on a more. Yep. So I, I see Guys that come in with a certain mentality right away, and then as they grow, as we grow together, other things will come up that turn into their wives. You know, for me, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and then the moment I laid eyes on my little girl, things changed for me right away. So my why became different as I got older, and mm-hmm. as life changed and adapted. What's easier, <laughs> being a, a, a fight coach or being a parent, being a dad? Which ones? Which one comes easier? You think? Frank, I'll tell you what. Sometimes when I talk to my kids, my wife will say, "It sounds like you're cornering a fight." <laughs> I swear to God. And there's times where if they're upset, or there's there's something wrong, or we have to defuse the situation. Yeah. It's almost like getting them on a stool. Take your time, just breathe, right? Spend 15 seconds working on their breathing. Tell me what's wrong. Here's how we fix it, and in a manner and a tone that's calming. And, and gets them kind of back in the center. Honest to God, I corner fights the same way I discipline my kids at times. 
And sometimes it's just that, that, that again, the eye contact and that commitment to, look, we're going to fix it, we're, we're, we're in this together mm-hmm. sort of mentality, you know? Now, entrepreneurship, anybody who's ever tried, I mean, running a, a 24,000 square foot gym, it sounds easy because Randy Couture is a big deal. He's got a great name. Um, and, you know, the guy is just a beast. Uh, but it's not easy. There's a, you know, Dana White used to say to me back when I worked for UFC, he said, you know, this is, the MMA is a place, that, easy place to lose a lot of money. It's yeah. an easy place. Even when you run a gym, you know, 24,000 square feet is ambitious to have a gym that's that big. Mm-hmm. And so this gym went through a, a time when it wasn't doing as well. Entrepreneurship is really hard. I always say to people, um, to me, entrepreneurship is how long can you drown? Like how long can you, can you, can you, can, can you, uh, you know, it's a drowning competition. Like how Very much can point. you almost drown? How, much, how long can you tread water? This gym, by all appearances, I've seen it over the years. It is, it is doing well. It is revived. It is reinvented. There's great energy here. Um, like you said, even the egos, you don't feel it when you come in. This is an alpha environment. It don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the egos are very balanced, but what would you say from an entrepreneur standpoint, running a business, you guys, you guys are all doing it together, a team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what has turned the tide? What are you doing to make it work? What would have been the keys or entrepreneurially? Easily to me, it was surrounding ourselves with like-minded individuals setting a standard for what we as a team wanted mm-hmm. and putting the people in place that felt that need to be a part of that growth. And the people that didn't want to be part weren't fired. They just, they just didn't make it. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't want to continue on the standard that we all set. Dennis Davis, Coach Fallis, Ray Sefo, myself. So it was the right people first. It was the right people. Surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals that are working to, to, together to achieve a common goal. Yeah, was, wasn't, wasn't a balance sheet, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a number sheet per se. I mean, that's relevant, but that was not Correct. the biggest thing. Correct. One of, the, one of the most intriguing things I've ever li- heard from a, from a multi-million dollar CEO was he goes, I, I don't hire people for education and credentials. I hire people. I hire people that I can trust and that I know that, well, I can train them to do these things that I need, but I want to hire people people persons and for me when I took over the gym you know I felt that there was areas that they just coaches or members or fighters or whatever it may be weren't here to push that standard you know and move move forward and once you set that standard and everybody lives that standard small things small little things turn into the big the, to the big victories so again reading people Again, At the end of the day, there's a lot of there's a lot of variables, but reading people is a key right. element of as an entrepreneur for an entrepreneur the success sure. of, of what's happening. And you have to be willing to, you know, I'm I'm big on, you know, for example, just yesterday the the urinal was overflowing. I could very easily call one of the guys and say, listen, the, the front desk guy or the maintenance guy and say, hey, the the, the urinal's overflowing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's easier for me and it it's better for me to just go and handle it. And deal with it. And it does two things. For one, the kid that sees me doing it, that probably should be doing it, knows, hey, my boss is not above me and can go and handle this. And it makes him and pushes him harder to do something. So when I ask for something to be done, they go, man, this guy doesn't even care about cleaning the, the urine off the floor. Right? Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I'm not a delegator. I'm a doer. And when my team sees me doing the same things as they're doing, when I'm in the weeds with them, I think that builds that camaraderie. They built. They they understand that I'm 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 here for them no matter what. 
do you do you read business books or is it more instinctual for you? Are you reading um, business books that have helped you I read guide a lot. you or psychology books and that sort of thing? You know what's crazy is for me the the books I usually read are military books, mm-hmm. and I feel if I if I read a military book about these leaders mm-hmm. because their leadership roles are life and death, mm-hmm. my leadership roles are losses, wins and e- losses. ER room or no ER room, maybe. <laughs> exactly. But not life and death. Exactly. Yeah. So um, those things to me and just listening to how these men and women lead mm-hmm. individuals. And, and I'm talking, I just got back from Langley this past weekend. Yep. 18, Virginia, where the, F- the FBI academies there yeah, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. 18-year-old kids that are in charge of things that can ultimately affect the lives of thousands. They leave a rag on the floor. Mm-hmm. They don't tighten a bolt enough. They leave a wrench somewhere. And and they can risk put people at risk. They can put people at risk. Bolt. And listening to what they had to say about the pressures and the stresses on life was very intriguing to me. And the one thing that I try to the point I try to get to cr- across to them is own that. Right? Be confident and own that. Have a little swagger about that. Because there's not a lot of the population that can actually do what you guys do. Right. Don't take it to an egotistic standpoint to where you slack off on it, but be proud of the fact that you are one of the very few. Don't make it a stressor. Make it a part of your confidence in the way you carry yourself mm-hmm. and knowing that. And to see the change in the dynamic in the room that we had of, of these you know, 20, 18-year-old kids, and they're like, you know, yeah, and they you were, know what? They were, they, were, they were what branch of military? Air Force on that, in that one. They're, I did an Army and an Air Force. Did you go with Ran- did Randy go with you? To, Randy to did Langley, not. He was supposed to come, but okay. he had the movie. He's in Roma- what, Romania or something? Yeah, Romania. Okay, or he was in Romania. <laughs> yeah. That's a great name for a country. I mean, Romania is a great name. So just to, just to see the, the, the way the military standard works, mm-hmm. those are the kind of books that I gravitate to um, because I want to try to lead these men and women and it's not necessarily into life and death battle, but it is in our in our state of mind. It is a battle. What was your? You were, you went to Virginia for what? What was what? Did, why, why did they seek your knowledge or expertise? Um, so it was actually through MMA Junkie, mm-hmm. uh, George Garcia and goes. They mm-hmm. they they called me up and they this is now their fifth tour. Okay. Um, and it, at first it was kind of like a, a glorified field trip. Uh, the and then I was able to meet General Frost, a two-star general. He actually came out to Vegas, and then they caught wind of uh, Randy and I's charity that we have mm-hmm. out here, the MVP program. And General Frost came in and saw the MVP program, saw kind of what we were doing. I talk really quick, just uh-huh. in 10, 15 seconds. What is the MVP program? MVP stands for Merging Vets and Players, okay. and the idea of it is the the transition process between veterans and pro athletes when they leave their field, yeah. what they're missing. So we bring them together to train, and we go upstairs and we do a fireside chat and we talk. Okay. So General Frost was a part of that fireside chat. And this is a man who didn't really understand or know what he was getting himself into. And he walked in, went upstairs, and, man, you want to talk about a great leader. Right on point. Answering questions. Firing away. Mm-hmm. People, so he, he came here. You guys sort of re- reciprocity. You went there to talk to them. Uh, General, General Frost, he came he, here. And, he and actually came here first, knowing that I was coming out to Langley. But didn't know about this program. So mm-hmm. once he saw the program and kind of what I was doing out here, he goes, "Man, we got to bring this back." He goes, "When you come back out to Langley, I want you to meet with uh, the colonels and sergeant majors, mm-hmm. and then some of these young kids." So it almost turned into like a field trip for me on one end, and then almost a public speaking a- a engagement on the other, yeah. which I-, I loved every bit of it. 
Did they express to you any challenges for the, you know, like obviously the 18, 20 year old kid, other than the challenge of, hey, I'm pretty young and, right. you know, the, my, my brain's not fully developed. But, right. Um, what, Every unit that we went had different age groups, it felt like to me, and, and certain levels of stress. I went, I put on the bomb suit, I went in the EODs unit. We're talking about guys who can potentially blow up trying to disarm an IED. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've all seen Hurt Locker, and it's, it's, it's that. So that type of pressure and that dynamic in that room was, I mean, who are we to go and talk to them about how yeah. to deal with certain type of pressure? But again, I wanted to speak to them about the idea of how much I empathize with them and how much I appreciate them. It is, it is interesting because there is a natural, and again, Randy Couture is an Army vet too, so it, I mean, he just has tons of credibility with the military just naturally. I mean, he's speaks German, by the way, but but there is a natural synergy, even though the battlefields can be life and death, and usually cage fighting. I mean, UFC, for instance, and Bellator, they've never been a knock on wood, never been a, a fatality from the cage, but, um, you know, and cage fighting is, is relatively safe. It's much safer than people would think it is. Right. It's, it's much safer. Boxing, I think it averages like four or so fatalities a year, generally. Uh, boxing's cut down. I think there's been like 1,300 or so boxing uh, deaths going back to like 1890, documented deaths. Uh, but that's gotten a little bit safer. I think boxing is, you know, I love boxing, but I think it's. I think it carries more risk. But there is a, a natural synergy between, you know, the, the military and military personnel and fighters. It, it's a natural kind of relationship because, yeah, fighting is not life and death, mm-hmm. but there's so much sacrifice. It's a Spartan lifestyle. Um, it is an alpha environment. At Very the end of the so. day, even though we, it's amazing how uh, how much humility you see with a lot of the martial artists, notwithstanding what we've been seeing lately, which is WWE stuff, which is where the money is and which is really unfortunate. But still, by and large, um, fighters are pretty humble and, and, and manage their egos pretty good. You have to because you can get beat even in practice. You carry that ego. That ego thing goes too far. You'll get it. You'll get your ego checked. Right. Quick. Um, even in, in training, not just the fight. So, um, but, but there does seem to be like, you know, there's a natural synergy there. And again, even a lot of the military more and more and more now too, not only were they, were they training in the combat arts anyway, in the physical combat, but it, ever more now, there's a lot of military personnel that are training jujitsu, wrestling, yeah. MMA, etc. Mm-hmm. So there's a natural um, there's a natural harmony there. You were um, growing up in Vegas, tell me what's the biggest challenge you encountered and how did you overcome that? Um I would say complacency out here where the pitfalls that we talked about earlier are very accessible, especially at, at, a, at a young age. Mm-hmm. And growing up, 18, 19-year-old hothead kid, um, you have a sense of um, invincibility to you. Like You feel like you can get away with things and do things. So uh, it, it really set me off track in, I would say, just being considerate, being understanding, knowing you know the, the, the things, the tasks at hand that I need to accomplish. This, this town made me complacent a lot of times. You know, and, and I think when did you start to recognize that or care? Because you could do that, and then you just you don't know what you don't know. I, you didn't care. Yeah, then, I think um, I think when some of my actions caused me, I you know I got kicked out of school up in Reno, got in a big fight, 
Because it's University of Nevada? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, play, you played college football, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, you were li- linebacker. I was... Uh, played I was, at Dixie in Utah, yeah. Dixie College in Utah, and you guys were pretty dang good. You guys yeah, were, were very good. A junior college, but but very good. Very good national championship teams, yeah. National chance, amazing. Uh, I played wide receiver, and then uh, in college, I got moved to strong safety. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I started to understand that the the repercussions of your actions and, and what they represent, and, and then... Really, the, the biggest thing, the biggest change for me was just having having my kids and, and going back to understanding that some of my actions, the cause and effect, can cause, can can harm. Dominoes, yeah. Correct. Can harm um, people around me, yeah. whether, whether I think about it or not. So for me, you know, growing up was the complacency, I think, a lot of times. You mentioned, so sometimes for a lot of us to correct our behavior, we have to hit bottom or we have to lose something we love, we really care about something. Right. What, did, what did you lose that, that that taught you those lessons and made you want to change? Getting kicked out of school, getting kicked out of Reno, for sure. How long did it take you to get over that psychologically? Um, it, it took me a long time, and it, it really did. It took me a long time. So ultimately what happened was... Years. Yeah, years, long time. Uh, very, that, very, that haunted you. That haunted you for a while. And and the crazy thing about it is, was I was angry at all the all the people that were involved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got in a fight. It was it was a, a a girl involved. It was in the dorms. It was this. It was that. And everybody else was to blame. And then, I mean, years down the line, Frank. Mm-hmm. So what happened was, I tested very very well for uh, North Las Vegas and City Fire Department. Mm-hmm. I was going to do my my paramedics and everything else. I scored a 98. I scored the highest written test. I got hired by both, both departments. And then I disclosed what happened in my background investigation uh, up in Reno. All, all it was is actually dropped to disturbing the peace. Right. But right. on record was this fight. Yeah. Right. And that fight caused me not to get a career in the fire service. And again, and that broke your heart, broke my heart, but it goes back to being angry yeah. again. And then I don't know so what it was. That just followed you. That just followed me. You. And it made me mad. So one it, mistake. I mean, it, it, that's life. One mistake. Again, you're doing very well now, but at that time, correct. One mistake. Boom. Two, the dominoes fell, and and now you're yeah. deprived of of a career. Two months after my 18th birthday, I was in, I was involved in this altercation that followed me for for 10 years, right? So you're thinking about it, your record and this and that, and like, oh, that won't even come up. And it did because you're going to hire somebody who has nothing on the record that mm-hmm. has maybe the same test scores you or somebody that has something on the record. You know, I try to spin it as, as a life experience and things right. that I've went through. Right. But at the end of the day, I, I wasn't hired. And again, you go back into those. And uh, you knew, even maybe though know, it's not said, you knew that that was, that was hey, that's, right. that's what's being held and, against. And, and for me, the most liberating thing that happened to me years down the line was finally being able to look at myself and go, no. That was your fault. What you did was wrong. Not this person or that person or anybody else. I was able to actually open up and go, I was at fault. Mm-hmm. I screwed up. I shouldn't have gone and gotten that fight. You know? And and once I kind of felt that way, I felt very liberated in the fact of letting it go. And it was almost like a, a moment of, of clarity and a cleansing moment. And understanding that, you know what? Sometimes it's not about everything else around and it's not about you. You have to you have to take take in consideration of what you did wrong, and move forward. How old were you when you gained that awareness? Um, let me see. What am I, probably 
you know, probably 28, 29 years old. Yeah. What's interesting is I always say, too, because it's weird. Someone can follow you around for 10 right. years, right? right. Can for follow sure. you. I've had things follow me around for, you know, we think, oh, you're mentally weak or whatever. Mentally tough people have stuff that follows them around, too, that, that Dan Gable, mentally tough dude, is still haunted by his loss, his one loss to Larry Owings in college. It can, things can haunt you. But, you know, um, Talking and moving again to that the, the life challenges. By the way, life gets you art of life here with Eric Nixick, who is a uh, man, a longtime bartender, which makes him sort of a psychologist and also a fight trainer here at Extreme Couture, one of the most renowned gyms in MMA. Um, and we're talking about life challenges and him having to, you know, uh, having a fight that followed him and cost him a a job with the fire department that he that he was uh, maybe a very good candidate to get. Um, and let's talk, I mean, you had, you know, of course this last year, I'll tell my side. I mean, I was working on a TEDx speech last year and I think it was around Christmas. And then I got wind. I saw on Facebook that, uh, Robert Follis, who is a, you know, very bright mind, one of the best MMA cage fighting trainers and a philosopher, a motivator, a guy with a great voice, and um, he obviously had a lot of uh, demons and things haunting him, and um, he took his own life. And I'm bringing this up. I mean, again, you know, this is not easy for any of us. Eric knows people. I know people. We all, people listening, know people that are committing, taking their own lives. And it seems like it's happening more and more and more. I know that younger people even are taking their lives more. Those stats are going up where suicide for the 16 to 24 year old demographic is going up. It's on the rise. And, um, so it's, it, it hurts you. I mean, it hurts you when you see someone like we all feel can feel guilty. Well, maybe I should have this, that, the other. And I know, um, you know, I think it's, to me, it's one of the saddest things when someone, because the irony there is that Robert, who's great with motivating his fighters, like don't Mm -hmm. quit, don't quit. The Mm -hmm. irony is, right. You, you, and any of us, if any of us were to do that, it's like I'm telling people, don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. Is like people who don't understand anything about psychology will be like, don't quit, never quit, right? That's that's like almost ingrained to us here in America. And yet, someone thinks that their life is so unsolvable, so much out of a re- so much out of whack. And so, I guess the thing is, I mean, how are you, how do you do what, you know, what are, what are our takeaways? I'll give my takeaway. What are your, what are our takeaways from the suicide thing and how do we do more or can we do more to help each other? Because I, I guess like even we're in a man sport, we're in an alpha sport, you know, but at the end of the day, we're humans and we get low and we hit bottom too. And how do we do more? I mean, do we do like Oprah and everything and just start having more sessions? Hey, lean on me. It's okay. Mm -hmm. We're dudes, but we have like, you know, we get everybody together and we lean on each other. We tell what we're feeling. What do we do so that whatever is heavy on someone, they, they don't, people around us don't take their lives or something. What can, what, what can we, I mean, I don't know. I think of that. I don't even know if I know right. the answer, but what, what, what are your thoughts on the whole, on the whole suicide thing and people, you know, that have taken their lives? You know, it's, it's hard because you, you feel like, you know, somebody very well, um, and you start seeing maybe subtle changes in those individuals and, uh, you know, I've known Robert for a long time. Um, we've been through a lot together, obviously. And then, you know, his, his younger brother passed away in 2014 due to the same um, illness of depression. And 
you know, we spent a lot of time together talking about these things, Coach Fallis and I, and almost getting him through that that time. But when you say getting him through it, you think back and, and you, you never really know if he ever got through that. Mm-hmm. And um, the family dynamic of what he went through and how he was raised, I think just, just almost uh, there was no end in sight for him at times. Whether he felt loved or not, it just it, he had an emptiness to him that I don't think he could ever fill. So, you know, I don't know if there's really an answer to that to that question other than the fact of, you know, giving yourself and and trying to be able to have open lines of communication so they do have a, 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 somebody to talk to that they trust. And um, that's I think my biggest regret of the situation was I was there for him in 2014 and and we were and we, we we talked a lot about his brother and, and the pitfalls of depression and where mm-hmm. he was at. And, and I do regret not being here for him during this time where he decided to take his own life. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, think about him every day, you know? Yeah, we, um, you know, and again, I was a reporter for newspapers. I was a editor in TV and, and I've spent 20 some years interviewing people and, and, uh, you know, I always loved the, the site. The I always almost consider myself like a, an untrained or an instinctual uh, forensic psychologist. That's really what I'm most interested in, even with interviews. And I think that um, with the suicide thing, um, for you know, what's interesting about that? I mean, because think about this. So I, I even saw something where. I remember when when it happened, Robert's girlfriend. I mean, he had a long time girlfriend. He had a good, like I guess it looked mm-hmm. like good relationship. He had like it wasn't like he was alone. I mean, Robert had he's a very respected trainer. I mean, he had a, a girlfriend, a pretty girlfriend, and like I saw that that she had um, posted on Facebook something to the effect that Robert's beliefs, like he believed in reincarnation. He was mm-hmm. a big believer in reincarnation, and I'm a philo- I was a philosophy major in college. Mm-hmm. And that struck me because I thought, wow, you know, because you always wonder, like, somebody, I mean, if somebody kills themselves and, like, let's say they believe in God, like, if you're raised Catholic, I was raised Catholic, if you're raised religious, you're always taught, like, man, if you kill yourself, then you're going to go to hell or you're going to go whatever, like, do not, you do not, you know, you do not do that, Uh, you know, you will spend eternity in hell is, is what they're taught, right? But you take someone who might be an atheist or an agnostic and someone's, oh, what do they believe? Because then there's not the stigma of if you kill yourself, right? And then you think, well, okay, in this case, um, Robert believed in reincarnation. And that was, that was interesting to me because I thought, wow, if, if someone believed in reincarnation and there was a lot that was heavy on them, they could think, wow, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else. What's next? Right. Maybe it's better than this. Right. I can pull this trigger and I can find out right now. I've always wondered what's on the other side of this and I'm betting there's reincarnation. And that was like, wow, like that was, that was like, you know, like scary to me actually because mm-hmm. I'm thinking, wow, if people, I don't, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. pretend to know what Robert was thinking. But if somebody did think that, I was like, wow, that's like, because, you know, for me, and I understand, I was getting this point, I understand, um, you know, why people kill other people. I mean, people say, I don't understand why. I understand why. Um, I'm from inner city Baltimore, where the homicide rate last year was the, is the highest homicide rate in the history of, uh, the highest known homicide rate in the history of America, 
okay, where people would beat you up or, or commit acts of violence for you looking at them the wrong way. So, and then even as a, as a journalist, I understand people maybe lose it, they snap, they whatever, they were raised a certain way, they're evil. It doesn't, I'm actually surprised more people don't kill each other, to be honest, in right. a civilized society. I'm, I'm actually surprised that there isn't more. But even if you look at the statistics, the odds, I was talking about this with Lieutenant Tom Monahan, hostage negotiator and, and former head of the homicide division here in Vegas. You know, the odds of you being murdered are very slim. If you're not a drug addict and you're not uh, in an abusive relationship, whatever, the odds, are, your odds are like almost infinitesimal. But I actually understand where someone could hit rock bottom and where they could want out. Mm-hmm. They could want out. They hit mm-hmm. rock bottom like it's not going to get better. It hasn't gotten better. I'm a mess. And then you throw in some substance abuse, right, right. where they're not even in their right mind mm-hmm. and their cells are all out of whack and they just feel like crap day after day after day. They're waiting for it to lift. I can see that where you would feel it and it would cross your mind to do it, mm-hmm. to to do it. And, and, you know, and even you would expect if someone does it, like you would expect that they're, they're crying out for help. And like in these kind of situations, you don't really, you don't get the warning. Like we always think if someone's going to do it, we're going to get the warning. There's going to be alarm bells. We're going to know. Right. And we don't know because there's just people like, man, the guy was nice. He was happy. He was whatever. He never complained. He never talked about suicide or she, by the way, women, uh, women, um, attempt suicide more than men. Men succeed much more statistically. That's an interesting stat. Everybody I know, the suicides are almost all men. Uh, but the women attempt it more. Guys just actually succeed at it. But you just think there's going to be the warning signs. And now it's like, for me, what I'm almost thinking is like, man, I'm going to just pay more. Like, I want to pay more attention. Like, let me send that guy a text. Let me give that guy a call. Let me have lunch with whoever. And I don't pretend to be able to talk someone out of it but you just want to make them feel like, I guess, the only little thing we can do in our universe, and even as guys, because guys are a little different than, than women, but you, you think even as a guy, like, just check up on your buddy. Let him know you care about him. That's all you can really do is, like, yeah. hey, I care about you. How you doing? Checking in. Um, but I guess people tried to reach out. In Robert's case, they tried to reach out to him, and yeah. he didn't He didn't respond. I guess right. he, people, I guess, yeah, so... Um, well, anyway, I don't want to, you know, suicide's a heavy topic. Um, it is something that I think a lot about because it does happen. It is happening with more uh, alarming regularity. But uh, getting back to to the life jitsu, this is this was a very um, helpful interview with Eric Nixick, who is, uh, you know, a very good people manager. I see that, and I'm a great time manager too. I mean, you're a busy guy with the wife, the kids. And you stay in really good shape. You look like you're 240, a Hulk of 240. <laughs> you're two, told me you're 220. I believe him. I'm, I'm 220. Yeah. So, Life Jitsu, Art of Life, Life Through the Eyes of Eric Nixick. You can go on to Anchor, Life Jitsu, Art of Life, the Anchor app, uh, and that podcast will be up there. We're going to keep him up here on Facebook as well. Eric, if people have any, if they want to be part of the MB, MBP Foundation or if they want to reach you, Randy, inquire about the gym, who do they reach out to? Where should they email or call or? Yeah, come by Extreme Couture. Um, you can find me here, or my email is eric at extremecouturemma.com. The MVP program is every Thursday, uh, 2 p.m. here at Extreme Couture, and that is for combat or veterans or any former professional athlete. So come on by. Frankie, if you have any emails, frankie at frankieforza.com. Frankie, F-R-A-N-K-I-E, at frankieforza.com. Thanks, everyone, so much. 
It's been a pleasure, Eric. Man, a blast. Thank you, buddy.